I'm going to ask this morning that you turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10. While you're turning, I'll tell you that if you have small children or youth and they weren't here last week, we have gifts for them in the back that we passed out on Christmas Day. And make sure that you, you grab them. This will be kind of the last opportunity to get it after the service. If I could get a couple of the young folks that helped pass them out. Uh, last week to help with that too. Hebrews chapter 10, which I know to the astute observer uh, you'll realize is not Philippians. Um, yep, uh, we, are, we are finishing uh, what I had planned to be a two-part sermon series around Christmas time. So even though we are on to a different holiday, we are still thinking about Jesus and the incarnation of Christ uh, last week we looked at one aspect of it, which we'll review here in a few moments. This week we see another. So we're going to read the first 14 verses of Hebrews 10. Now I'm going to tell you, this is, this is uh, not the easiest read. You're going, to have to, you're going to have to stick with me through this. Okay, now I'll unpack it after we go, but, but I don't want to see your eyes glaze over as we, co- as we read the first 14 verses. You need to wrestle with this, okay, and think about what he's saying. I know uh, some of you probably stayed up late and watched, watched the ball drop last night. We watched the ball go wide left in our house last night. For those of you who know what I mean, you know what I mean. But uh, we're here to worship the Lord. you got to stay with me as we read these 14 verses. Okay, Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's our text this morning, and it's a lot. It's a, it's a meaty text. 
Uh, Let me begin by telling you in Leviticus chapter 3, in the law of God, which is what the author of Hebrews here is referring to. In Leviticus chapter 3, the people were told how to make an offering to God. God said to them, when the offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering, and though there were other offerings, the routine is the same here. If he offers it of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering. You can imagine then with me this morning, if you will, placing your hand on the head of a lamb that is about to be slain and killed as you're placing your own hand on its head. And it says, and he shall kill it at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. That's Leviticus chapter 3, that is the law of God. Now, when you think about the context of that command in Leviticus 3, when we think of Israel, uh, that is to say ancient Israel, we might think of Jerusalem, or we might think of kings or prophets or the Old Testament, perhaps just the Bible in general when you think of Israel. But this Israel in Leviticus chapter 3 is barely a nation at all. Um, They were in the desert. They had just fled Egypt. They had no country. They had no king. Their only experience with God was in watching God completely destroy the Egyptians and watching God reveal Himself in the fiery mountain when He spoke to them and to Moses. They did not have the first five books of the Bible. They had the oral tradition of it. They knew the stories of God. But now they were experiencing God, and what they were experiencing had been, I think this is safe to say, fairly terrifying. What they had experienced of God was terrifying. It was so scary that the people told Moses, you go and you speak to God on the mountain and we will listen to you. Then you can, you can come speak to us afterwards because if God speaks to us directly, we will die. That's how frightened they were by their experience. And out of this terrifying experience, Moses gives these instructions, which we read in Leviticus 3 about the peace offering with this terrifying God. And he says... Here is how the people of Israel can have peace with me, Moses. This is the way, not a way, but this is the way that they can have peace with me. Not one way of many options. This is the way that Israel can keep peace. Uh, They will make a sin offering. They will make a peace offering. And when they make these offerings, they will offer a lamb to the priest. They will place their hand on the head of the lamb. The lamb will be slain, and the innocent lamb will bear the guilt of their sin, and there will be peace between Israel and myself. I don't have any experience with that sort of thing. Uh, Maybe you do. Maybe some of that is more familiar for you. I've never uh, butchered any animals. I don't have anything against it. I've just, I've never done it before. Um, I've heard people describe it. Um, I've heard people talk about even a connection with their food when they hunt or when they when they prepare an animal. It's something that you don't experience if you're just buying food in the supermarket. Um, and that makes sense to me when I hear people describe it like that, that it makes sense that, that that would be true. I would imagine that there is something in the experience of offering a lamb as a sacrifice that you and I cannot uh, fully understand. Um, the blood and the gore, we might be familiar with that, but the seriousness of what was happening Uh, we are are less familiar. The understanding that this has to happen because of my sin, and if I am to have peace with God, this creature must die. Um, 
This is the blood that is required for me to have peace with a holy God. It's in this language that in Hebrews 10 we read uh, this. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Let me unpack that for you logically if it helps. We are being asked to think through the logic of all of these ancient animal sacrifices. And God is making a point in Hebrews 10. He is saying, I want you to understand that just because I said in Leviticus that the people had to offer these sacrifices, the sacrifices themselves were only a shadow of what was to come. Oh, what does that mean? Well, if you stand in the sun and you cast a shadow and someone looks at that shadow, they may get a semblance of what you actually look like. They may get an idea of the real thing, but only a poor idea. They will not get a clear picture from looking at your shadow. That's what the sacrifices of God were. God is saying these sacrifices, Hebrews 10, these, these offerings, they gave an impression of what was to come. They were a shadow of good things, but they were not the exact image. They were not the exact image. And then he says, verse 1 of Hebrews 10, these same sacrifices, which they offer over and over again, year by year, I'm summarizing, can never make those who approach perfect. For, this is verse 2, again, I'm summarizing, for then, if they could make a person perfect, then wouldn't someone only need to offer them one time in their whole life? We just have to do it once. If, it, if these could truly take away sin, wouldn't it be a one-time deal? If I could truly be righteous before God by offering a peace offering, a burnt offering, then I'd only need to do it one time. But verse 3 says, in those sacrifices, there is actually a reminder of sins every year. The sacrifices themselves, the habitual nature of them, is a reminder, in fact, that they have not perfected anything in a person. The fact that they must be offered year by year is a reminder that we keep going back to the well of sinfulness. And so we have to keep going back to the well of the offerings. Under the law, you go back over and over and over again. And the real kicker in verse 4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Let me say that again. It is not possible. Um, I, this morning, uh, I was doing really good singing that choir song, and then when your choir director begins to cry, that's the end of the line, unfortunately, especially when you stand directly in front of him, and he shared with me that it was a, it was a, it was a challenging song for him, but I'll just, I'll just read to you the second verse of that. The cross of Christ shall be my way. To see my God on the bright day. I will ever praise the work that it's done. And it, it has done work. The cross of Jesus has done work. I will ever praise the work it's done. The cross of Christ, it stands alone. What does that mean? It stands alone. Well, the song continues. The cross of Christ built for me an instrument of agony. He shed his blood for sin's great price. He rose again and gave me life. The cross of Christ, it stands alone. 
There is no other way. No other way. Not the blood of bulls and goats. There is no other way. When an ancient Israelite appeared before the priest with the lamb, ready to offer his sacrifice, he was communicating this to God. I have faith that you will forgive me, God, and so I am obeying you. I'm obeying you. And it was the faith that justified him before God. As we read of Abraham, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness, just as it is our faith in God that justifies us. Now the ancient Israelite looked to the sacrifice of a lamb, a shadow of what would come to us in Jesus. But you and I, brothers and sisters, we look at the real thing. We look at the real thing. We don't see the shadow. But to us, it's been given the privilege to see the man. Last week on Christmas Day, we asked the question, why did God announce his arrival of Jesus to shepherds? And I gave an answer. It was a good answer. It's the right answer, one of many. I said, because Jesus is the good shepherd, the good shepherd of Ezekiel 34. And we spent a lot of time in Ezekiel 34. Uh, looking at all the prophetic words about this good shepherd that would come, how it could only be fulfilled in this God and man Christ. God says, I will be the good shepherd. And then he says, no, my servant David will be the good shepherd. And you say, what? How could both of those things be true? Either it's God or man. And then we see Jesus, God and man. And he is the fulfillment of Zechariah 11 as Zechariah portrays this good shepherd among God's people being rejected. And you remember, as they reject him, he says, pay me out my wages. And they say, here's 30 pieces of silver. And he takes it before the Lord. And he says, what do I do with such a meager price for my years of service? And the Lord says, throw it to the potter. <laughs> throw it into the house of the Lord for the potter, is what he says. And so the Lord chose to announce himself to shepherds because he is a shepherd. And in John 10, he stands up and the Messiah declares, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd of Ezekiel 34. I am the good shepherd of Psalm 23. I am the good shepherd of Zechariah 11. He leaves no mistake in it. And the Israelites had no uh, you know, lack of understanding when he said, I am the good shepherd. It was a messianic phrase. But the Lord also chose to announce himself to shepherds because Jesus is, as John the Baptist declares, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when the Lamb of God is born, the shepherds are called to see him, to attend to him. As they would a lamb in the field, they beheld him, and they returned to their fields glorifying and praising God for what they had seen, as the words in Luke 2.20, Jesus is the good shepherd. He is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verses 5 through 9 of Hebrews 10, if you go back to that passage, God is showing us by quoting Psalm 40 that this in Jesus was always His intention, always the plan in the sacrifices. Jesus was always what they foreshadowed. For even in the Old Testament, at the height of Israel's kingdom, we read in the Psalms the words of a pre-incarnate Christ from a prophetic psalmist acknowledging sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. David never offered his body unto the Lord. God did not give David a physical body to be offered as a sacrifice, but David 
is speaking of the one who would come as the heir and lineage of David, the fulfillment of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ of the house of David. And Christ in the Old Testament, prophetically in the Psalms, this is not my interpretation, this is the interpretation of Hebrews chapter 10. It is Jesus saying in Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings were only a shadow of the thing. You did not desire those, but a body you have prepared for me. And so when we think of Christmas and we think of that little baby in a manger and we think of the blessedness of it, we think of the sacredness of it, we think of the holiness of it, let us also acknowledge that body was prepared for a cross. That body was prepared for our sin. It is, as John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, in Psalm 40, Hebrews 10, it's quoted, Behold, I have come. Not a bull, not a lamb, not a goat, not a dove. This body you have prepared for me, behold, I have come. The volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O oh God. Think about that. It's every once in a while people ask me, hey, I'm not sure how to start reading, but I'm not sure where to start. And sometimes I want to kind of, with, with a little bit of coyness, say, well, it's all about Jesus. You can pick up, you know, any book really. How do, how do you say such? What do you mean it's all about you? The volume of the book. <laughs> the whole volume of the book is written of me, says the Lord Jesus. That's not David's words in the Psalms. Not David. <laughs> not quite that arrogant. All of the Bible was written of me, says David. No, no, no. Says the heir of David, Jesus Christ. And what does the volume of the book written of Jesus describe? Jesus come to do the will of God. And you can hear in that assemblance of, of what he says over and over again in John's gospel, I can do nothing other than what the Father commands. I and my Father are one. I do nothing of my own will. <laughs> but you can also hear it a little bit in the Garden of Gethsemane, can't you? Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that was not some great tragedy. That was the will of God. Lambs and bulls. No, 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 no. As it says in verse 5, a body you have prepared for me. This would be the sacrifice. When we say Jesus is the Lamb of God, we are saying He is our substitute. Substitute. You and I, we can exhaust all of our energy trying to make peace with God and we will fail if we do that. Jesus, if you will, has tagged us out. He has come into the game. He has stepped into the arena. He has taken center stage on our behalf. He has, in our place, accomplished peace with God for us. The Lamb of God is our substitute. I want to play out that theme with you for a few minutes and a few Bible stories that you will recognize. In Genesis chapter 22... This is before the law. This is before the sacrificial system codified in Leviticus. In Genesis 22, God tells Abraham, and you can see, if you will, in the language of this, and I know I've taught on it before, you can see the symbology of this. He tells Abraham, take now your son. Now, Abraham was familiar with animal sacrifices. We see many of them in his life. We know even going back to Cain and Abel in the Old Testament, 
They understood the sacrificial system of God. They understood that a lamb, an innocent lamb, without blemish, the first of the flock, is what should be offered as a sin offering and a peace offering to God. So even though it was not codified in Leviticus for a nation of people, Abraham understood the sacrificial system, and he understood that it was a lamb to be offered. In fact, on their way on this journey that I'm getting ready to describe, his son will look at him and he will say, his son Isaac will say, Dad, we're on the way to present an offering and we have the wood and we have the fire, but where is the lamb? See, he understood. They knew what the the sacrificial system of God was. This was no new command. And yet in Genesis 22, God tells Abraham, take now your son. And then he says it a different way, your only son. And then he names him Isaac. And then he adds, whom you love. And offer him as a sacrifice to me. And Abraham takes Isaac to the land of Moriah, knowing full well that God has never required any sort of human sacrifice before. This is not one of the pagan gods. This is not Molech of the pagan people of of the land that they would inherit. There are no babies being offered to God. There are no brides being tied to the altar. There are no slaves being sacrificed in the pits. Knowing full well that this is no maliciousness on God's behalf and believing, surmising that all that God could mean by this is that he would in fact bring his son Isaac back from the dead. He treads along to the land of Moriah. The land, incidentally, or perhaps not so, where Jesus himself would one day be offered. The land of Moriah as it's known in the Old Testament. And Abraham, believing God that he had the power to raise Isaac from the dead, raised his hand, as it says in Genesis chapter 22, with the knife to slay his son. And then what happens? Well, you know what happens. An interruption is what happens. Abraham, Abraham, a voice, we're told the angel of the Lord. Not a visible representation of the angel of the Lord, just a voice. And as he turns and he looks, the voice says, do not lay your hand on the lad. And then he looks at where the voice is coming from. And in verse 13, there behind him is a ram. What is a ram? Is it a different kind of animal? No, in the Semitic languages, a ram is merely an adult male sheep. The voice, the direction of the voice, and a ram, an adult male caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham would and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering. And then here's what it says in Genesis 22, instead of his son. Now, can you see the substitution of the lamb of God? God made a substitution for Isaac and in doing so, he himself cast a long shadow forward. Must have been a strange story for the Israelites to have. Why would God give us this story? Why would God set this whole thing up between Abraham and Isaac and go kill your son and now don't kill your son? A long shadow was cast forward, which they could look at and wonder at, but not see clearly. But you and I, we can see clearly what God is doing in Genesis 22. This is God who did not spare his own son. This is God who presented an adult male sheep, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And it says in Genesis 22, Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. Provide what? Provide food? Provide shelter? No, no, that's not what Abraham has in mind. The Lord will provide a substitute for my son. (laughs) And indeed he has. 
the angel said to the shepherds in Luke 2, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy, which will be to all people. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, and we might as well say a substitute, someone to stand in your place, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The Lord has provided. Uh, One more theme in Isaiah 53. We won't turn there. I know that sometimes when we turn to Isaiah 53, which I do frequently, I do that in my own life. I would encourage you to turn to Isaiah 53 frequently in your own life. But sometimes I know I I can end up preaching 35 minutes on Isaiah 53. So I'm not going to do that. But a sampling from Isaiah 53, which tells us of the suffering of the coming Messiah. If you're ever in conversation with an Orthodox Jewish person who believes the Old Testament, but doesn't believe in Jesus, I encourage you, open, open their Bible with them to Isaiah 53 and begin to read. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You hear the substitution there. Not his. He was wounded for our transgressions. Verse 5. The chastisement for our peace. And I think of Leviticus 3. I think of a peace offering. I think of the announcement of the angels to the shepherds. Peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. It says in Isaiah 53, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And then in verse 7 of Isaiah 53, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yes, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. God has put him to grief. Verse 10 of that chapter says, You make his soul an offering for sin. I don't know how anyone can read that and not believe in Jesus. I don't know how anyone can read from the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before Christ. And now believe in Jesus. The disciples didn't know either as Jesus unfolded these things for him. It is a sad truth that what seems so plain to me is so ambiguous to others. In Hebrews 10 verse 11, now, we read the sad reality of the time. Remember, the author writes, in the first century, there are still priests in the temple. Rome had not destroyed Jerusalem. Jesus had died on the cross and rose from the grave. But every day, there are still priests in the temple, as the author of Hebrews writes. And he writes, every priest stands, ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God for that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Now again, this is where I'm going to resist the rabbit trail of Revelation 5 because if you want to know how Jesus is going to have his enemies made his footstool, then you need to look into Revelation 5 and see John, who's wondering who's going to open the scroll of the judgment of God. Who's going to open the scroll of the judgment of God upon his enemies, upon those who have martyred the saints, upon those who are in rebellion and worshiping the false gods of the earth. Who's going to, who's going to judge it? And it says, and no one was found. And then John begins to weep and an angel looks at John and he says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open this scroll. And it says, John looked and I saw 
and behold, a lamb. <laughs> the angel says, here's a lion. And John looks and it says, behold, a lamb. <laughs> Standing as though it had been slain. And Jesus sits down and he opens the seals of that scroll one by one. And his enemies are made his footstool. And at the conclusion of that, he returns. And that's what it says here in Hebrews chapter 10. Waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. But we won't do that today. Look at verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now listen to me. If Jesus is your Savior, he has perfected you forever in the eyes of God. And I know I don't ask for very many amens, but that is one that you should say amen to. If, if Jesus is your Savior, he has perfected you forever in the eyes of God. Not until you screw up again. Not until you fail. He has perfected you forever in the eyes of God. Oh, you're still being sanctified. You're still growing. Me too. You're still wrestling with sin in this miserable flesh. You're still struggling. Me too. And I know what life is like for me. I'm assuming it's similar for you up and down, up and down, up and down. And now I'm very close to God. And now I feel very far away. And now I feel very near to the Lord. And now I feel very, very far away. I understand that. I do. I don't condone it. I can't condone it in my own life. But I, I understand. And yet, those who are being sanctified, and that's what that is. Sanctification is the continuing move up despite the continuing drift down. Those who are being sanctified, He has perfected forever. How? You have been saved by a perfect substitute. The wrath of God that you deserved was poured out in Christ in the land of Moriah. God has provided a lamb. Amen? Now we will let the author of Hebrews speak to us. What do we do with this? What's the application? You've told us all of these wonderful things. You, you, you author of Hebrews, you prophetic word of God. Now what should a Christian do with these wonderful things? And I speak now to Christian people. What should you do? Well, he tells us. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You see that in verse 22? You see it in verse 22? I'm going to give you three things. That's one. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What is he saying? Don't pull away from God. Don't shy away from God. Please, Christian, don't put distance between yourself and the Lord. Draw near. <laughs> draw near to God. Draw near to Him in worship. Draw near to Him in prayer. Draw near to Him in the fellowship of His people. Push in. Push in. Don't withdraw. Draw near. Let that be a conviction of your heart this year. I, I will tell myself, Reggie, you big dummy. <laughs> Don't withdraw from God. Don't withdraw from His people. Don't withdraw from His word. Don't withdraw from His fellowship. Draw near to Him. Why? Because you are perfected in His eyes. God is not dangerous to you. Don't be like the people of Israel looking at the mountain of God and 
in the desert as Moses goes up and they see the flashings of lightnings and the thunderings and they say, Moses, you go talk to God and we will stay back at a great distance. (laughs) No, no, no. We have been perfected. God is no danger to us. Draw near. Second thing we're to do in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. That last part should go without saying, right? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Hold fast the confession of our hope. There's something declarative in that. A confession is something you declare. You know, the, 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 the great theological statements of, uh, of the Middle Ages were written as, these are our confessions of faith, you know? <laughs> Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. We are to confess what our hope is. It should be the defining part of who we are as people in the world. When someone knows me, let them know as much or as little about me as they would like. And if they don't care to know me all that well, that's okay. If they're not interested in the details of my life, or if they want to know every part of it, that's fine. But for whatever they know, let them know that I am a Christian and my hope is in Jesus. I will not waver in that. That's what he's saying. We don't need to waver in that. Hold fast the confession of your hope. I believe in Jesus. Why? He is faithful. He is trustworthy. Is sharing the gospel so easy as to hold fast that confession of both, that confession of, of hope, so that whatever it is people know about you, they know my hope is in Jesus Christ. Well, why is that? Let me tell you. You're, oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot you're a Christian. Yeah, you're, yeah, you probably don't do that. No, I don't. Let me tell you why. Yeah, you're a Christian, so you'll probably be in church that day, right? Yes, I will. Let me tell you why. My hope is in Jesus, and he's trustworthy. Here's why. I know who I have believed in, and I am persuaded 100% that he is able to keep my life, which I've committed to him, against that day of judgment that's coming What is your hope in? Is sharing the gospel that easy? So we should hold fast the confession of hope. And finally, what should we do with this knowledge of Jesus' sacrifice? Well, we read in verse 24 and 25. Now, I know this is where everybody goes home bitter at the pastor, but that's okay. This is from the text. It's not from me, but... (laughs) Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Oh, man, here we go. I knew it. I can hear it. I can see it in your eyes. But exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. First, let us think about each other. That's what he means. Let us consider one another. Uh, Not consider ourselves. No, no, no. (laughs) Let us consider one another. The other people, not me. Philippians, I believe, we've read calls that let us have the mind of Christ. Let us consider one of the Christian people who are in church fellowship with each other. That, that is all that he means here. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't have concern for everybody else in the world. Of course we should. But he's writing to a church here, and he's saying, let us consider one another, not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, which, look, let's be encouraged by that. The, I, I've gone through those stages in my life where it's like, you know what, I know I should be there. I should probably be here for this, but I don't feel like this. I don't feel like that. And I, there are ups and downs. I understand that. I, I, I do. That's not judgment for me. I, I understand. I do. I've been through that. My wife watched me go through that. It was a hard thing for her. 
I wasn't the man that she thought she married for a while. So I understand. And it's, I hope, encouraging to you to know that 2,000 years ago in the New Testament, <laughs> they're wrestling with the same things that you and I are. It wasn't different. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. But as we see the day approaching, and brothers and sisters, let's just take Jesus' words at face value at the end of Revelation when he says, Behold, I come quickly. As you see the day approaching, consider one another. Don't withdraw. Draw near. And let's think about how we can stir up love and good works in each other's lives. When you're here trying to encourage people, trying to love one another, you know, I, I sit up in the, the choir and I see some of you trying to encourage one another and to love one another, even changing seats and moving a little bit. And it warms my heart because when we come here together, we should not be thinking about ourselves. We shouldn't come here with the idea of well, what might I get out of this? What can I make sure my family gets out of this? What can I make sure I get from this? Now, when we come here, we should be looking around. Let us consider one another. So three things that the author of Hebrews, not Pastor Reggie, <laughs> but, but three things that the author of Hebrews says we should consider. We think of what God has accomplished for us in the Lamb of God. Let's try to do this even better in the coming year. Let's pray together and we'll observe the Lord's Supper. Father, your word is full and complete and rich and there is much to be said from it, much to be learned from it. But we are dense people, uh, slow to hear, fast to speak, quick to judge, slow to consider. And our lives are very busy in our own eyes. But Father, I thank you for the time of worship that we have to meditate on you. I pray, Father, that it will be more than just a one out of seven day centering of our souls. But if that's what it is, Father, let that be enough. But I pray, Father, that we will draw near to you in the coming year. That we will share the gospel with others holding fast to the confession of our hope, publicly and boldly, and that we will look to others in the body of Christ as you yourself have done in your servant Jesus, thinking of what might I do to stir up love, to stir up good works, good actions in the lives of your people, Father. Thank you for your son, Jesus. He is the chief of all treasures. It's in his name that I pray.